Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome to our Aliyah day. This is the second Aliyah of Parsha Shemini. I am uh, Rabbi Griffin with Sar Shalom Synagogue. I am glad that you are joining me. If you are new to our program, our broadcast here, we want to welcome you. Uh, we have people who are uh, watching from across the fluted plain. Fluted plain. Sorry, I said fluted. I had in my mind. The uh, wonderful uh, fluting, that the uh, flute playing that uh, our dear Keila did. And uh, there you go. So my brain merged the two together. But anyway, doesn't matter. Thank you very much for uh, being with us. Glad that you are here. Baruch Hashem. As I said, we are in Parasha Shemini, the uh, second parasha of... Uh, I'm not sorry, there's a third parasha of the book of Leviticus. We are now going to be in chapter 9. If you have the Art Scroll Chumash, we are on page 591. We are on, uh, as I said, chapter 9. The second Aliyah actually begins um, in verse 17. We're going to begin actually reading in verse 15, though, just to kind of give us a running start getting into this. We're going to read to the end of the chapter... Uh, although technically the third Aliyah begins in the last verse of this chapter, but we're going to reserve chapter 10 and the remainder of uh, the third Aliyah for tomorrow to talk about the alien fire and the death of Nadab and Abihu, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite drashas to give because it has so much important relevance to our theological day and age. But before we get there, let's go ahead and look at the second Aliyah, shall we? Yes, we shall. Let us dive in. Verse 15. He brought near the offering of the people. He took the sin offering goat that was for the people and slaughtered it and performed the sin offering service as for the first one. He brought near the elevation offering and performed its service according to the law. He brought near the meal offering, filled his palm from it, and caused it to go up in smoke on the altar, aside from the morning elevation offering. He slaughtered the bull and the ram, the people's feast peace offering. The sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he threw it upon the altar all around. And as for the fats of the bull, and from the ram, and from the, for the tail, the covering fats, the kidneys, and the diaphragm with the liver, they placed the fats upon the breast, and caused the fats to go up in smoke on the altar. Aaron had lifted up the breast and the right thigh as a wave offering before Adonai, as Adonai has commanded. As Moses has commanded, Sleekim. Aaron raised his hand toward the people and blessed them that he descended from having performed the sin offering, the elevation offering, and the peace offering. Moshe and Aaron came to the tent of meeting, and they went out and they blessed the people, and the glory of Adonai appeared to the entire people. Verse 24. A fire went forth from before Adonai and consumed upon the altar the elevation offering and the fats. And all the people saw and sang a glad song and fell upon their faces. That's, I want to begin by sharing a little insight here into Aaron. Aaron was a very special per person. And according to the, to the Tanakh and according to... Uh, the sages, he was someone who was um, just a very humble person, someone who really uh, believed in bringing peace between brethren. And we are actually encouraged in Pirkei Avot, among other places, to 
emulate to Aaron, to be people who who pursue peace and who um, want to be a blessing to others, more or less. But there's something else here um, that was written in the Kehot Humash with respect to the to um, yesterday's Aliyah Shemini, and it says uh, talking about Aaron's superior merit, his superior merit even to Moses' his own merit. It says uh, the comment that I have here highlighted is it was therefore Aaron's involvement in the concentration consecration rites that made it possible, so to speak, for God to complete the process begun by Moses' preparation and reveal his presence in the tabernacle. So as we learned yesterday, Moses, for seven days, had taken set up the tabernacle and taken it down, set it up and taken it down, and was a preparatory uh, instrument, if you will, a, a preparatory priest to this great day, the eighth day, But it was actually Aaron's merit, as is being put forth here, it was Aaron's merit that actually provided a catalyst, a vehicle with which God could use to bring his glory to the earth. So it says this insight is not merely of academic or historical interest. We all desire to feel God's presence in our lives. In order for this to occur, we must imitate Aaron. Now, now. This is how this is how we imitate him, and, and, and I wanted to share it because um, it, it, it has insight into who we are as Lapid Jews. So, in order for this to occur, we have to imitate Aaron. So, how do we do it? We do it through love, a love of peace, pursuing peace, a love of your fellow creatures, creatures. All right, so the. The phrase creature here, because words mean things. A creature is every living thing. Every living thing is a creature. But obviously, we can say that in this case, we're speaking specifically about humankind. But loving and pursuing peace does extend to creatures, right? We need to be uh, kind to animals, for instance. Animals have feelings. Anybody that owns a dog or a cat knows that to be true. So it says here, and, so we love peace, we pursue peace, we love our fellow creatures, and, there's an and here, and bring them close to Torah. Now, I would submit to you that the ultimate way in which we express love to people, that we pursue peace, and that we love peace, and that we love our fellow human being, our fellow creatures, the ultimate way to show that, to express that, to articulate that, the ultimate way is to bring them close to Torah. Why? Well, first of all, Yeshua, the Prince of Peace, is the Torah made flesh. So if we're talking about pursuing peace, and bringing people close to peace, and loving peace, We are talking ostensibly about the Mashiach, who is the Torah. So at the end of the day, the word of God, the Torah of God, the law of God, the law of Moses is peace. So if we want to pursue peace, we've got to pursue Torah, bottom line. If we want to bring people close to peace, we've got to bring them close to Torah. We've got to love Torah, not just believe in it, but love it. 
Why? Because it's peace. And if we love people, if we love creatures, to include the dog and the cat, the donkey and the horse and the whatever, we love creatures. If we really love them, then we want to bring them close to God. And ultimately, the Torah is God. The Torah, that's what it, what, what, we, we read that in the book of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is that not what it says? That, my friends, is also a Jewish idea, naturally, because John was Jewish. He wasn't anything other than Jewish. <clears throat> so naturally, the Jewish idea is that the Torah ultimately is God. In fact, there's many, many, many sources that say the Torah is the Shekinah of God. Which means, as it says in the Midrash, the Torah, which, just to, for clarity, the Torah is the Word of God, the Torah is the Holy Scriptures, the Torah is the will of God, the Torah is the wisdom of God, the Torah is the law of Moses, the Torah is the law it's all synonymous terms. And so the Midrash says that the Torah is also the spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh. So if we really love people, oh, I, let me, I left something else. God is life, right? And the Torah is life. Yeshua said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the Torah made flesh. And so therefore, if we really do love people and we love peace, then the ultimate expression of that is to bring them close to the Torah. Why? Because we're bringing them close to God. We're bringing them close to the source of life. How is God going to resurrect the dead? Through his word. What is his word? The Torah. That's why Yeshua said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why? Because he is the word. Don't you love theology that makes sense? Isn't it beautiful to live in a theological world in which everything is logical and falls in place and you don't have to have theological gymnastics to get from one point to the other. Isn't it great? Let's just soak that in for a second. It's amazing that everything is perfectly logical. So, bringing people close to Torah is the ultimate expression of love, which is why Yeshua sent out his disciples and said, bring the nations to Torah. Teach them my commandments. Why? Because they will know you by your love for each other. It didn't say go and make converts to some other religion that takes them away from my laws. He said go and teach them my laws. How? Why? Because that's the expression of love. That's the expression of caring for people. That, that's what it means. As I said yesterday, if you want to teach people to not... If you know that you live, you're, you're sitting down at the, at the proverbial banquet table of Torah. Like, like for an, in, in, in 26 days or something like that, we're about to experience Pesach. And then we're going to count 50 days. And first of all, that whole 50-day period we're counting the Omer is in itself a glorious time. And then we're going to get to experience Shavuot. And then from there, it gets better and better and better. We're, we're experiencing all those insights. And if we experience all of that, and we know the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the, the, the feast that we're having, 
why we don't want to invite other people to it. What type of person does that mean that we are if we don't want to invite others? It's like the two uh, lepers during the siege of Jerusalem went out and discovered that God had routed the enemy and they had fled in terror. And now all the spoils are laying around and everybody in Jerusalem is starving to death, literally. And so these lepers decide to go ahead and collect a bunch of spoils and they're sitting there feasting on the abundance of provision that the enemy left behind. And all of a sudden they say to each other, wait a minute. It's not right that we should be here eating all of this stuff and enjoying all the gold and walking around in royal garments. Meanwhile, everybody else is starving to death in Jerusalem. That's not right. And moreover, if the king finds out that we knew that this was here, listen to this. If the king finds out that we knew this was here and we allow people to starve to death, what do you think is going to happen to us? So, we should go tell everybody. And they did. So God says, listen, I've given you a great banquet. Why is it you're enjoying it and not inviting people who are starving to come eat it? And by the way, if I give it to you and reveal it to you and then find out later that you are purposely not telling people, what do you think is going to happen to you? Why? Because you didn't earn it to begin with. You grew up in a Jewish home. So what? I could have just as well. God is saying I could have just as well had you grow up in a home in uh, Russia, a, a home in uh, wherever, Afghanistan. You could have grown up in a Muslim home. So what? So with that in mind, I often have said that there's no such thing as a Noahide uh, movement. All that's false fantasy. And people, whenever I've said that, have said, but Rabbi, it's in the Talmud, the sages say. So I'm going to give you a little insight into how my brain works, in case you didn't know. So obviously, the sages say in the Talmud that there are no hides, right? Okay, there's, first of all, that's an opinion, and there's other opinions that contradict that, and it even says in Abu Dazarah 3a, that um, the Noahide laws that have been given to the nations were actually taken back from them because they failed to keep them and give them back to Israel. But that's another topic. So why do I say then, if, they, if there is a claim out there that there is a Noahide and it's, the claim is based on Jewish sources, then how can I say there isn't, it's all fake and phony and you know plastic banana, good time rock and roll, phony baloney stuff? Well, I'm going to read to you something. Because... I'm trying to I'm trying to express this in a way that makes lot, something very complex very simple to understand. On the one hand, you can say that there is a covenant for non-Jews. They don't have to come into the covenant of Israel. They don't have to keep Torah. So the idea is they can be righteous Gentiles. As long as they follow the seven laws, they're fine. But on the other hand, we all agree, all of us over here in the covenant, we'll all agree that if you're not in the covenant, you're not in the covenant. So in other words, if you are a non-Jew, then you live outside the supernatural realm. If you're a non-Jew, then you don't have the benefits of the kingdom. And so what ex if that's true, right? And that's it's repeated over and over again. I mean the 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 the, the concepts are and uh, Jewish thought are replete that if you're not Jewish, therefore you're not in covenant. 
the proverbial sea doesn't split for you. There's not that, you're not, you don't live on that level. You, in fact, there, it even goes so far as to say that you don't have, you're not able to have the insights that we have. So if that's true, then how can we say there is a covenant for non-Jews? Well, what, what covenant? To what? To live in the natural realm? And oh, by the way, there's many sages who say non-Jews, they exist in the Alam Hazay, and that's it. That is the world that's now. But to that end, here's another example of a contradiction. Remember what I said. I said that the idea is that non-Jews have a, a covenant, a Noahide covenant, and that Jews have what they have, and you don't have to come, become a Jewish. It's, it's, you don't really have to. You can, kind, you, you can if you want to, although we won't let you, but you can, kind of, theoretically. And so everybody's like, hey, I can be a non-Jewish, and I'm, I'm just fine. Listen to what I'm about to say. By the way, King David, when he was fighting Goliath, what was, listen to this, please pay attention to this. What did he say was the factor that was going to give him the victory? What did he say when he was about to approach Goliath? What he said was that I am going up against this uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, uncircumcised meaning he is not in covenant. And as a result of being not in covenant, I am going to win. Which implies what? That there's only one covenant. And if you're outside of it, then there's no victory for you. He didn't say, well, I'm going up against an uncircumcised Philistine. But it's possible that he's a Noahide. And if he is, then uh, this might be a draw. But most likely he's not a Noahide, in which case I'm going to win. And so I'm willing to take that chance. Is that what the script, is that what the story says? No. He was emphatic that uncircumcised versus circumcised is a win for the circumcised, period. And with that in mind, let me read this with Rabbi Monk to verse 6 of chapter 9. It says, This is the thing, this is the thing, Slika. Zehadavar, Hadavar, Hadavar, by the way, is another word for word, but that's neither here nor there. It says, So the, the term Zehadavar, is also used in reference to circumcision in Joshua 5.4. Now, that becomes important because I just said this is the thing, but the word thing and the word for word in Hebrew are the same word. So this is the word, or this is the thing. So the word of God is circumcision, right? Like Paul says one time in one of his letters, this is one of those nonsensical things that Paul writes. He says, uh, keeping the law or not keeping the law doesn't matter, uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, being uncircumcised or circumcised doesn't matter. What matters is keeping the keeping the law, keeping the covenant, keeping the word. The problem is, is that that doesn't make any sense because circumcision is part of the law, right? So you can that uh, anyway. That's the kind of that's one of those things that make you what? But um, anyway, so anyway, it says the term Zehadavar is also used in reference to circumcision, Joshua five four thereby suggesting that Moses wanted to remind the Jewish people of the commandment of circumcision before ta talking of God's appearing to them. For Listen to this. For Adonai, for Hashem, does not, say it with me, does not. Let's say this together. For Hashem does not dwell among the uncircumcised. Let's read that again. 
for Adonai does not say not. Louder. Okay. So, for Hashem does not dwell among the uncircumcised. So let me just ask you a question. If Hashem does not dwell among the uncircumcised, then what is it? what covenant are we inviting them to? A covenant that is devoid of the presence of God. And Moses was so emphatic about the presence of God that he said, listen, if you send us up out of here and your presence doesn't go with us, then don't even bother. We would rather not go. Why? Because leaving this place without you, what value is in it? What purpose is in it? Without the presence of God, what is anything worth anything? Why? Because everything we have comes to the presence of God. So we're inviting people to keep a covenant that we know is devoid of the presence of God rather than inviting them to a covenant that we know that the power of God has descended upon us and lights our fire. If we really want to invite people to a covenant that is devoid of presence of God. Meanwhile, we live in a covenant that is filled with the presence of God. What type of person does that make us? And is it really and truly showing the love for our fellow man? I'm sorry I'm getting so fired up. Please forgive my enthusiasm. But this is the way I think. And this is what drives me bananas when I hear people talk about inviting people to keep a Torahless, a lawless covenant. Meanwhile, they are living at the table. And you want to know something that really drives me crazy? If you, do you want to know? I'm asking, do you want to know? What really drives me crazy is some of the loudest voices making that statement are people who have converted to Judaism and some of whom I know personally withheld the knowledge of their faith in Yeshua in order to trick their way through conversion. Meanwhile, they're telling people no need to convert. Hey, Hashem is my witness. What I just told you is absolute fact. Fact on the ground. This is why it drives me crazy. And I read things about Aaron, who is a lover of peace and wants to draw people to Torah. We're supposed to emulate him. And meanwhile, we're following Yeshua and leading people away from the very thing that Aaron and Moses embraced so, so valiantly and so boldly. The very thing that King David embraced with such enthusiasm. The very thing that... In fact, all the, name a hero in the Bible who wasn't an observant Jew. Name one. Why did why was Miriam, the the young lady who had the privilege of, of giving birth to the Mashiach, why does the Scripture say she was chosen? Because she was observant. Why was Joseph chosen to be her husband? Because he was observant. All right, moving on to something else. I'm sorry. I just, I just really, I'm very passionate about this topic, and uh, I don't know. I just, it, I just find it. I, I don't. It, if I had a bunch of gold coins that were given to me, and I had millions, billions of dollars 
what type of person would I be to keep it all to myself when I knew that people around me were starving to death? I don't know. And that's what the reality is. The reality on the ground is people are starving to death. They are starving to death. And those of us who know about the Torah want to keep it all to ourselves because we're trying to keep it in the family. So, on to another topic. I just want to share this right quick. Why, I, I love the uh, the Jewish culture of, of weddings versus the modern day culture. You know, when, when in our American culture, anyway, I don't know about other cultures, but in the American culture, when uh, a man and woman are going to get married, it is typical for the uh, man and the lady to have a bachelor bachelorette party. You know, one last night on the town as single people, even though it's kind of weird because they're not really single, right? Yeah. And um, all the debauchery and all the nastiness and all the filth that goes along with that. And that's how they enter their covenant of marriage the next day. Isn't that wonderful? And we wonder why the divorce rate is so high in America. But the Jewish way is different. So it says, atonement for yourself and for the people. It says here, Aaron was told that before offering atonement for the community, he must first obtain forgiveness for his own sins. That's according to Ramban. So only after he himself was, was purified could he act for the other people. We find the same rule in chapter 16 regarding the sacrifice, sacrificial service of Yom Kippur. It says the parallel between the inauguration service and that of Yom Kippur extends to other details as well, in particular to the complete burning of Aaron's hatat offering, no part of which may be eaten by the Kohanim. So it says here, as with every new stage of life, the consecration of the sanctuary requires an act of general purification. Yom Kippur serves as the ultimate model for this concept. Thus, thus, on his wedding day, the groom fasts and asks for forgiveness for his sins, just as on Yom Kippur. So for a bride and groom in Judaism, when they are about to enter into the covenant of marriage, they spend their day pre, you know, prior by fasting and praying and asking Hashem to remove uh, from their souls iniquity and for, to forgive them for their sins. Very often they, they attend the mikvah and emerge in a, in a mikvah prior to their wedding so that they enter into the covenant as newborn babies, so to speak. They enter into a covenant where the two are going to become one. They enter into that covenant now pure, holy, and righteous. I just love to point that out because it is such a contrast to um, what we have in modern society. Uh, this is why, again, referencing back to that letter from Paul in Colossians, he is obviously not talking about uh, people keeping tour because he says, listen, why are you trying to return to the base things of the world? The base things of, of the world would include a bachelor party before your wedding. Um, that is obviously the base things of the world. Fasting and praying and seeking God and going to the, to the kosher mikvah prior to your wedding day is obviously not the base things of the world. That's obviously the glorious spirituality of Shemayim. And that, my friends, is the difference. It says as a comment here, the verse 22, Aaron raised his hands. I just love the insight here that a, the, it, 
points out that the blessing did not come from Aaron um, until the sacrifice was offered. In the same way, God did not bless Noah until after Noah's sacrifice. In like manner, Abraham, his descendants were not blessed by God until after the bounding of Isaac. So it says here, sacrifice willingly offered by a man is the source of blessing that he receives. So if we want to receive a blessing to God, of, from God, we have, have to, have to, have to, have to, have to be willing to make a sacrifice, even if that sacrifice, or this, or I should say the ultimate sacrifice is laying ourselves down for God. This is why coming forward and making a confession of faith or uh, believing in God is utterly meaningless if we're not willing to lay our life down for God. And that includes, my friends, on every level, on every level. Goes on to say here in the comments as well that that blessing th flows through the hands. I just want to say that where do we get the concept? Where where is the idea received that we should lay hands on the sick? Right, pray for people by laying hands on them. Well, it comes from the Torah, and one of the principal places is here where it says Aaron raised his hands to speak a blessing. The sages said that obviously hands play a mystical role in the same way we see um, uh, Jacob laying his hands on his grandsons and blessing them and so on. We put our hands on the on the offering and confess our sins uh, over it. I like to point out here that um, it says that in the comments, or excuse me, in the reading, it said that Aaron and Moses, after all the sacrificial service, that they went to the tent of meeting, spent a brief time there, and then came back. And then after the blessing, the Spirit of God fell. The fire descended from heaven. The question becomes, why did they have that brief intermission between uh, the sacrificial service and the fire? Would it make sense that after the sacrifices are offered, the fire would come down? The answer is, is because Hashem did not want to give the impression that the glory of God comes down through through some type of magical uh, incantation of sacrifices, but rather the sacrificial service does not autom as it says here the sacrificial service does not automatically attract the divine presence. It is only the means of coming closer to God. Its effectiveness depends on whether it is accompanied by a serious effort to improve oneself morally, as it says in another comment. Um, that that sacrifices, okay, do not constitute an absolute and unconditional fact. The blessings are the fruit of our avodah, the fruit of our obedience, the fruit of our service. So we can sacrifice all day long. We can lay our life down. Oh God, I, I give I give my life to you. I submit my life to you. But we will never receive the blessing until we're actually living for Him. This is what it means in the book of Devarim when it talks, it says, if you obey my commandments, then you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the field. The most important and oft forgotten word in that entire section is the word if. If. The blessings are absolutely, absolutely and positively conditional. End of our Aliyah today. We will get into the 
concept of alien fire with God's help tomorrow. Until then, I pray that you have a beautiful, amazing, and wonderful day. Remember to start cleaning and prepping for Pesach. I'm going to remind that uh, to you maybe every day um, or every other day or whatever because it sneaks up on us. So be careful. If you go out and start buying products, I would recommend that you only buy products that are certified kosher for Passover from this point forward. That way you don't get an find yourself in a situation in which you have to throw a bunch of stuff out. Nobody likes doing that. So anyway, I bless you. I uh, pray for you. May you have a great, wonderful, and amazing day. And we will see everybody tomorrow. Shalom, shalom.